chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 of the book of Exodus, Moses is in the middle of a conversation with God here where he's telling Moses, go down to the children of Israel first, tell them that I'm going to deliver them, and then you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. He's going to come up with one excuse after another of why he does not want to be the person to go do this. And it says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. He put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like all the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go... And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on the donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took a staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed 
And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. As we think about our relationships with people and how we get to know people at varying levels of depth, no doubt, but usually the people that we end up knowing the most are the people that we're around the most. And the reason that we know them the most is because being around them the most, we see how they conduct themselves, the things that they say and the things that they do in a larger variety of circumstances and situations. So we understand them better the more circumstances that we see them involved in. And you know what? It's really no different with God. With God, as we read through His Word, we see God in a variety of circumstances dealing with people. And as we get to understand those things greater, we can see a more complete picture and get a deeper and a more complete understanding of who God is. The problem is, you know, sometimes I run into people that they only want to focus on one side of God. Sometimes you come across people that God is all just love and warm fuzzies, and anything that isn't a warm fuzzy isn't involved in their conception of who God is. That one character, which is a character trait of God, God is love, the Bible tells us, but that one character trait trumps anything else that would enter into their perception of God. We also seem to run into people sometimes that seem to focus more on the anger or the wrath of God. And that seems to be what dominates their view of God. Well, you know what? The fact of the matter is in the Word of God, we find all those things. We find the mercy of God. We find the grace of God, the love of God as He reaches out to lost sinners. We also find the anger of God and the wrath of God as He deals with an unrepentant world that would spurn Him and rebel against Him. And we see some of those same things within this passage. And at this passage, we see God angry with Moses. And I think rightly so. Moses is dragging his feet pretty hard for somebody that was so sure he was the deliverer 40 years earlier. He sure is not a willing participant right now. And we get to know God better as we see him relate in a variety of these situations. The situation that we see God in right now is is the situation of salvation. God is determined to deliver Israel. He's going to save them out of the land of Egypt and out from under the hard hand of Pharaoh upon them. Remember at this point, Pharaoh has been treating them very poorly. He's made them slaves. We're going to see him even step up that forced labor and step up the harshness with which he treats them with shortly. He's even been putting them to death. He's been killing their children because he's afraid of them growing to the point to where they're a threat to the nation of Egypt. And so here's a very harsh individual, and and God is going to deal with Pharaoh. Well, God is delivering the nation of Israel from out from under that bondage within the nation of Egypt. And So that's what we want to consider here this morning, is this great salvation that God is providing for Israel. And by extension, it pictures the salvation that God provides for us as He delivers us through His Son Jesus from the bondage that we experience with sin. So in this so great salvation, we get to learn several things about God. Well, as we look at it this morning and we see God responding to different situations within providing this salvation, we want to recognize that there are five attributes of God's salvation. The first thing that we see is the revelation of God as we look in chapter 4. That is, God is a God who reveals himself. We've got a pretty thick book testifying to that. This is the revelation of God about Himself to us that He wants us to know about Him so that we can believe in Him. And that's exactly what we see in chapter 4 is that God is revealing Himself first to Moses and then through Aaron and then they're going to go down to the elders of Israel and the people of Israel and God is having them reveal who God is to them. 
Moses started out with some questions. Well, who do I tell him sent me? God says, I am who I am. Tell him, tell him I'm the self-existent one. That's who's sending you. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we looked at last week. That's who's sending you. But God reveals himself. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans chapter 1 that even the creation, the handiwork of God, reveals to us certain things about God. It reveals to us the existence of God. Because otherwise, how could all this be here? Can something really come from nothing? Is that science? I don't think so. Science says there is no uncaused entity. The fact that there's something here speaks to God. The fact that there's so much here speaks to the power of God. The fact that there's so much intricateness, it's so detailed, speaks to the creativity of God and the depth of God's wisdom. That the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, just by looking at creation, we're without excuse to not recognize the fact that there's a God and that He is somebody to be reckoned with. But that's not enough to bring us to the point of salvation. And that's why the Bible, and that's why the things that Christ did as He was here on this earth, that's why the miracles. You know, when you look down through the Bible, you find that there's about four different times where there's a lot of miracles. Other than that, it's just kind of life as normal. But there's four different times. One of them is during this time, during the time of Moses, when he's leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. There's a lot of miracles during this time. Another time is during the time of Elijah, during the time of Daniel, when God's about to rescue Israel out of Babylon and bring them back to Israel again. There's quite a few miracles. And then during the time of Christ and the apostles, there's quite a few miracles, about four, another 40 years of miracles during Christ and the apostles. So there's about four different time periods in the Bible where there's about 40 years in each time period, pretty close to it, where there's these miracles that are taking place. And what is God doing? Why the miracles? Because God is revealing himself. He's showing who he is. And that's exactly what we see. Moses tells God, look, they're not going to listen to me. I'm going to go tell them, God talked to me, and everybody's going to say, sure he did. And they're not going to believe me. And so what does God do? He gives them a couple miracles. He gives them the staff that's going to turn into a snake. He gives them the hand that's sticking in there that's going to pull it out and become leprosy. If you need it, dump a little water on the ground, it's going to become blood. Gives them a few signs. And God says, if they don't believe after the first sign, do the second one. Surely they'll believe at that point. If they don't believe after that one, then do the water thing. God is trying, God is proving himself. He's giving them these signs as he reveals himself. You know what? God has done the same thing for us. I remember talking to somebody one time and he's saying, you know, I think I'd find it easier to believe if I got to see all the miracles. And I'm like, how, how often does God have to do it? The fact of the matter is we have an incredible testimony from God in the signs that he's given to us. I don't see why they would need to be repeated. You know, if you look at the Gospel of John, it looks at the life of Christ, and he uses that word over and over and over, like 11 times, the word signs. He uses it to refer specifically to Jesus' miracles. When Jesus turned water into wine, John says, this was the first sign that Jesus did. And over and over and over, John says, and look at that sign, and look at that sign, and look at that sign. Why does he call the miracles signs? Because a sign communicates. A sign directs you to something. A sign says, look, that's noteworthy. (laughs) John does that all through his gospel. And what is the reason? When you get to the end of John's gospel, he says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
And so Jesus did all these miracles. Why did he do the miracles? Why did he feed thousands of people with one boy's lunch? Why did he walk on the water? Why did he heal people? Why did he raise the dead? To show everybody that he's God. To show them that he's the deliverer. He's the Messiah. You can trust in him. Those were proof of who he was. The greatest one being his own resurrection from the dead. You know, sometimes people still struggle with it. And I understand if you're not informed uh, on a few things, then maybe, maybe there would be a little bit of a struggle. To me, it's so overwhelming. I don't know how anybody could overcome it. But some people say, well, you know, how do I know that they did those things? Are these things that John wrote down, how do I know that those things are true? The things that Matthew and, and Mark wrote down, how, how do we know that they were telling the truth? Well, I think we've got a lot of evidence of that also. First of all, if it's made up, they're the ones that made it up. Secondly, when we look at the character of the people, they were character people that went on to teach people about honesty and love of other people and putting other people first. And so their ethical life was, was one that was inscrutable. It was, did I just make up a word there? <laughs> I think I might have got two words stuck together. But um, it was beyond dispute, these people. And, and so with somebody that's so ethical, with somebody with such a high value of other people and other people's life and such a high commitment to the truth, would they make up a lie as grand as this? Secondly, of course, you could always go back to the things about where, where was the, where's the body if, they, if he didn't rise again from the dead. And not, not only that, they also had to convince a lot of people around them that started that first church that these things really happened in, right in the place and right at the time where they didn't happen. And so I don't know how you could make up a story like that and get anybody to believe it. And then lastly, they all died for it. All the 11, you've got to kick Judas out because he already hung himself by that point. But all the 11 were willing to die just for the one thing, that this is the truth. Would they be willing to die for a lie that they know is a lie, that they made up themselves? We're not just talking about somebody else tricking them into it and they're just so, they just believe it so strongly that they're willing to die for it. These would be the guys that would have actually fabricated the story. And they were willing, every one of them, 100% of them, willing to die in torturous ways for that lie. To do what? To pass the signs on to us. You see, God reveals himself. And when he sends Moses, he gives Moses a few signs. He's not performing entertainment here. He's saying, look, these are amazing things that should get somebody to believe you. When Jesus came, he did sign after sign after sign, miracle after miracle to do what? To prove that he was the Son of God. So it would be beyond a doubt that he was it. So God reveals himself to us. He gives us those signs. But not only do we see that as a characteristic of God's salvation, but we also see the sovereignty of God. As Moses is going to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, what does God tell him up front? God tells Moses, Pharaoh's not going to let your people go. It's going to take a lot of pressure upon Pharaoh to get Pharaoh to let your people go. In fact, God says at different times, he says that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart is going to be hard and God's going to harden it even more because God is planning on bringing down Egypt in a dramatic way. Every one of the ten plagues that we're going to face is going to take down one of Egypt's gods. They had a lot of different gods. And God's plagues are going to show that God has power over them and all of their gods as He takes them each down in these plagues. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart and He's going to make a demonstration. He's going to bring upon Egypt 
uh, through this. We see in, in Romans chapter 9 that this has something to teach us about salvation. As Romans chapter 9 looks back on this and says, look, what do we see in this? That God is sovereign, which means God is in control in salvation. He's in charge. He decides who he will have mercy on and where his grace will extend and on whom he will harden. It says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on a human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, I know as we go through the story a little bit later, we're going to recognize that there's some hardening from a couple different sources. The Bible tells us that Pharaoh hardens his own heart before God, and it also tells us that God hardens his heart as well. In fact, as we look at it, there's going to be ten times through the dealings with Pharaoh that it's going to say that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. There's also ten passages that says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In the first five of the plagues, that are brought upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In the last five plagues, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh is acting in accordance with his own will as he hardens his heart against God, but God also is sovereign in this and is determined that he will harden Pharaoh's heart as he delivers the children of Israel. Part of that speaks to the next attribute that we see of God's salvation, which is justice. Because when you look at this, God is bringing back upon Pharaoh exactly what he has brought upon the children of Israel. Every baby born to the Israelites, if it's a boy, it gets killed. We're seeing God carrying out a divine justice here because Pharaoh has been slaughtering any son that is born to the Israelites. And now God turns the table on Pharaoh. And he says, all right, Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to take the life of your firstborn son. And as we know, when you get to the end of the ten plagues, the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn within the land of Egypt. And so God is determined to bring justice upon this. And you know what? A lot of the language in describing this part of what's going on very much reminds us of Christ. This talk about the firstborn and Jesus being the only begotten son of God. The wording even to Moses God tells Moses, those who sought your life before are now dead. Remember Jesus, Joseph, his stepdad, took him into Egypt to protect him from Herod because Herod went in and slaughtered all the baby boys under two in the area where Jesus was born. Well, we see Pharaoh slaughtering all the infants of Israel during that time period, very similar to what happened during Jesus' time period. And then Jesus is rescued out of there. Joseph moves him to Egypt where he'll be saved. And then when it's time for them to come back, God goes to Joseph and he tells Joseph, all those who sought the young boy's life are now dead. That Herod had died. And so we've seen a lot of similarities between Moses coming in to deliver the children of Israel and Jesus coming to deliver us as well. And that's the thing. Moses is that prophet that God would tell him. I'm going to raise up another prophet like unto you. Speaking of Jesus. So just as this picture is the salvation that Moses would bring Israel out from under the bondage of Egypt. It also pictures the salvation that we experience in Christ. And you know what? The same thing is true with the justice. Because Pharaoh is getting exactly what he has dealt out to the Israelites. He's getting justice. 
in Christ we see justice. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If God as judge does not judge sin, then God is not just. And God cannot be unjust. So what do we find in the cross? And I love it, as I mentioned in adult Sunday school earlier, I love it that it's a cross. Because it is a crossroads. The cross is where the, the mercy of God and the justice of God come together. You see, God is just, so He cannot just say, oh, fiddly dee about your sin, no big deal, because then He wouldn't be just. But God is also merciful, so how does He do it? The cross. He dies on the cross in our place. Now God can forgive us of our sins because Christ has received justice. Sin has been judged. Fourthly, we find the faithfulness of God. In fact, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to combine this one with the last point. The last point is the determination. And I think let's just put those into one thing because they they kind of are different nuances of the same thing. But my point is that God is faithful to carry out His salvation. He is going to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and there's no two ways about it. Now the reason that I kind of did it is they are a little bit different because one, the faithfulness of God stands out compared to the faithlessness of the Israelites. When Moses first comes to the Israelites... He comes to them and he tells them that God has spoken to them and what God's going to do. And he shows them the signs. And what does it say that they do? It says that they believe and they worship. They're excited. God is going to deliver us. But then you know what happens after that? They go to Pharaoh and they say, let us go. And Pharaoh says, no, I don't think so. And Pharaoh says, you know what? If you've got enough time on your hands to think about this kind of stuff, then you're idle. You have too much time on your hands. And so I'm going to help you out with that. Their main job was making bricks. And so Pharaoh talked to the taskmasters. He said, he says, you're going to require the same amount of bricks, but here's the deal. Don't go get their straw for them anymore. You see, they used to provide the straw. And when they couldn't do it, they beat them. And when they said, hey, what are you doing? Why are you treating us like this? This isn't fair. Why are you beating us? Well, we're beating you because you've got too much time on your hands. Because if you've got, you got time to think about that stuff, then you can get your own straw and the same amount of bricks are required. And so they, they, kind of, they put pressure on them to cave. You know what? Same kind of thing's happening today. The world always puts pressure on believers to try to get them to compromise their faith, to cave in. Just learned about one this last week. Down in Florida, they have a voucher system in their school system so parents can have a choice of where to send their kids to school. You can send your kids to public schools, private schools, doesn't matter. And you have a voucher that you get, since it's your tax dollars that are paying for it. You get a voucher that if you give your voucher to this school, then this school gets that money that's your tax money. They get that money to help run their school. But it's getting hit. And this is what's getting hit in it, is the Christian schools. The Christian schools, because they teach a Christian tradition and a Christian morality, which obviously does not include homosexuality and some of the other things that are going on in our society these days, then some people started pointing that out and they say, look, there's taxpayer money going to Christian schools 
Well, of course it is because those parents pay that taxpayer money. But anyway, it's being directed to those Christian schools. And so, you know, what happened was you had this reporter that broke a story on it that said, look, uh, they don't allow homosexuality to be practiced within people that go to these schools. And so they're discriminating. They're not inclusive. So you know what we need to do? We need to not include those Christian schools in the voucher program. So I don't know how you call it inclusion, to not include. But anyway, and so they're starting to put pressure on. And then they contacted these corporations because there's corporations also that donate to this voucher program to help pay for school for kids. They contacted these corporations and they said, you know what? These, uh, these Christian schools, they're not inclusive enough. And so you know what we're going to do? We're going to out you in front of the public. We're going to publish something that tells how intolerant you are if you don't stop the funding. And so you know, like Wells Fargo Bank and some of these other banks and institutions said, you know what, we're going to stop funding that program. So in other words, they're trying to put financial pressure on the Christian schools. They're attacking the parents. They're attacking the schools. They're, attacking, they're putting pressure on it. And now here's the interesting thing. Are they going to cave to the pressure or not? You see, that's what happened in Israel. Pharaoh applied the pressure, and you know what the children of Israel did? They went back to Moses, and they said, May God judge you for what you've done. For what we've done, we're we're in the process of delivering you. But they couldn't see that. They believed it. They worshipped God. The first pressure that came against them, they caved. They caved in to that pressure. But you know what? God didn't cave. He was faithful. It says in chapter 6, verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, four different times in this passage, God says, I am the Lord. So this is, he's swearing this by himself. He's saying, I'm the Lord, and I'm going to do this. And he keeps reminding them, I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord. And at the very end, he says, I'm the Lord. This is what's going to happen. Now, he also reminded them of something that happened a couple chapters back. He says, remember, he pointed out, I have heard. He says down in verse 5, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. So God says, look, I've heard your cry. I've remembered my covenant. Now I'm going to do something about it. And then seven times he tells them what he's going to do. He says in verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Again, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So you see, we see the great determination of God here and His faithfulness to Israel, even when they are faithless to Him. Even as they said, oh, I I didn't know we were going to suffer through this. Never mind. Hold up. You know, they were unwilling to pay a temporary price for a greater deliverance. But God said, I'm still going to rescue you. When we first become a Christian, it doesn't mean life is going to be totally easy. You know, we're not walking on the streets of gold yet. In fact, Jesus would tell his disciples that if you don't pick up your cross, you can't be my disciple. The cross doesn't speak of the easy life. Jesus told them also in Luke, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, Hebrews 11.6 says part of our faith is looking to God for the reward. We cannot draw near to God unless we know that he exists. We believe that he exists and that he rewards. We are looking for a reward from God. We're looking to be forgiven. We're looking for this salvation. We're looking for this heaven instead of hell. 
We are looking for the reward. But the reward, though there are rewards in this lifetime that we experience, the reward is not the rewards that we experience here. It's the reward that we experience there. That's why a little bit later in Hebrews chapter 11, after giving the examples that were given before this of people that lived in faith like like Noah and Moses and, and Abraham, he said these people died in faith not having received those things that were promised yet, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. When we first become a Christian, or as we continue on as Christians in this life, it doesn't mean that the road before us is going to be nice and flat and smooth. Right now, there's a cross to carry. You see, it's important for us to know that because Israel, the first sign of hardship, and they caved. God is faithful. We need to trust Him. God is determined to provide us that salvation that we have in Christ.